Welcome back to Mission is Possible. I'm Sasha O'Connell, and I'm thrilled to be introducing this mini-series of the Mission is Possible podcast, a joint project between GuideHouse and the School of Public Affairs at American University. This spin-off series dives into the world of presidential transitions and explores what can be expected inside national security agencies during this time frame and how best to prepare for success by talking with the folks who have been there. Thank you for tuning in and please enjoy. On this episode, we're pleased to welcome Patty Cogswell as a guest host. Patty is a strategic advisor for GuideHouse's national security segment, having recently retired as deputy administrator at the TSA. Today, Patty is joined by former administrator of the TSA and the former deputy director of the FBI, John Pistol. They discuss their shared experience at TSA and John's perspective on experiencing a presidential transition from both a career and political appointee perspective. Please enjoy. John, thank you for joining us for today's special episode. If I could ask you to start with a short summary of your career in the federal government, highlighting where you were during presidential transitions. Sure. I'm just starting off. Yeah, I'm John Pistol, and I'm currently the president of Anderson University in Anderson, Indiana, my alma mater. And uh, prior to that, I served as the administrator of TSA for about four and a half years, uh, from the summer of 2010 until the end of 2014. And Thoroughly enjoyed that, the challenges and opportunities there. And then before that, I served for almost 27 years as an FBI agent and finished up as the deputy director of the FBI, which is the senior career position in the FBI. The FBI just has one presidential appointee. And so I served for almost six years, uh, still a new indoor record for longest serving deputy director by that title anyway. But uh, served in Minneapolis as a street agent and in New York City in the 80s, investigating the mob, Costa Nostra, as they say, and and then uh, went to FBI headquarters and spent about three years there. And then Indianapolis as a white-collar civil rights and cybercrime supervisor, and then to Boston as what's known as an assistant special agent in charge, ASAC, for about two and a half years, uh, overseeing New England cybercrimes, white-collar crime, things like that. And then to FBI headquarters in um 2000, and then uh, became uh, part of the inspection staff and things. And then 9-11 happened and, of course, changed everything. And then was invited uh, a few months later into the newly expanded counterterrorism division. And I said no three times. And and then uh, Director Bob Mueller contacted me and said, I'd like you to serve. And I said, happily, sir. And so uh, I did that and then stayed there from then until, like I say, went to TSA in 2010. So in presidential transitions, in going back to as far as 2004, actually was the FBI briefer, if you will, for the candidates. So President Bush, uh, Bush 43's re-election in 04, and Senator John Kerry, and and then his his running me. We briefed both of them. So there was a CIA and and, and then myself uh, briefers. And it's uh, something similar in 2008 for candidate Senator Obama. And then um, also after the inauguration for, or the night of the inaugurations for uh, now President Obama, uh, but before his, his address, inaugural address, briefed him and his chief of staff at the time, Ronald Emanuel, uh, in terms of some of the security protocols that would be followed the next day as he was giving his, his speech um, on the mall there. It's kind of interesting because um, that was the first time um, I'd seen him in quite a while uh, from, from that initial intel briefing. 
And I don't think you really remember me, but uh, so we just talked briefly with Mark Sullivan, director of Secret Service, and, and Mom Emanuel. And then the uh, president turns to me and said, so what do you think I should say tomorrow? So my, my initial response was, well, I think everybody appreciates brevity, so I'd say be brief. He smiled and laughed a hearty laugh. And, uh, so I thought, okay, well, there you go. So I wasn't actually involved much in transitions until, well, and then became when I was TSA administrator in, in 2012, uh, but it was obviously a, uh, a re-election. And so there was very little actually transition involved in that. Obviously the, the normal course of people from the first term to the second term, things like that. So, yeah. You are one of a relatively small number of officials who both had a long tenure as a career senior executive and then went through the confirmation process for a political appointment. Can you talk with us a little bit about your experience? What factors weighed into your decision to accept and what was the confirmation process like? I'd say it's unique for each person, both in terms of their openness to and saying yes to that opportunity, that possibility, that that honor uh, in my mind. So when I was asked whether I would be willing to serve as TSA administrator. Again, I was the deputy director of the FBI and thoroughly enjoying that job. And so when I was asked, literally my first thought was, now there's a thankless job. What moron would want to do that? (laughs) And so I was that moron, I guess. And then I learned that there had been actually two prior nominees for the job who had not made it through the Senate confirmation process and that TSA was ranked about number 230 out of 234 best places to work in U.S. government. And so I'm thinking, hmm, okay, so not only is it a place that nobody wants to work, but I'm the third candidate for the job. So what does that say about my both uh, intellect and my emotional intelligence and all those things that come into mind when I've got a perfectly enjoyable, satisfying job and all that? But I also have a strong sense of, of God's guidance and leading in my life, uh, at least for the, the recent past. And, and I just thought, well, if it's a God thing, should I be open to it? And so thought about it, prayed about it, talked to my wife about it, and decided to say yes to the process as long as it could be kept as confidential as possible. Because for everybody who works in the government, you know that once word is out that you are even considering leaving, you become somewhat of a lame duck. So I didn't want that to happen recognizing that I might be number three for three and, and nominees who didn't get confirmed. Confirmation process was fascinating. Um, I briefed other nominees, obviously, for appointed positions, but never been that candidate. So that was a fascinating process and really helpful for me in terms of once I was actually confirmed to know people from TSA and DHS who I thought did a really good job on the briefings and those who perhaps could have done a better job and their level of preparation and just how they addressed the the myriad issues that that TSA and DHS were dealing with back in 2010. I will say for all of us, thank you for your willingness to continue to serve and take on difficult, but frankly, more rewarding jobs. In thinking about presidential transitions more generally, and just continuing along the comment you just made, what have you seen that you thought or found made a transition more successful? And how can federal officials in national security agencies prepare now for the transition, whether it's a change of administration or a second term? Yeah, so I think part of it is just understanding, uh, you know, for those nominees to really have a a, a deep as understanding as possible 
of the agency or the department that they are going in to lead. Um, oftentimes, coming from outside the government, you have impressions, is what I've learned, and perhaps some stereotypes, just as I did going from the FBI to DHS slash TSA. And so I think the more due diligence, I'll say, that the nominee uh, and, and then people in, in transition in whatever capacity can do to find out what are the opportunities to make improvements, and then what are the challenges to doing those changes, making those changes, and not just practical or pragmatic, but political, because that's part of the process, obviously. And so I think that's all part of it, just both sides, uh, both the agencies, departments, and the, the nominees just preparing as, as best as possible. And, and unfortunately, sometimes that doesn't happen for whatever reason. And I think we see the results of that where you know, a new secretary might come in or a new agency head and really either one doesn't know what they're doing because they don't, they're not subject matter experts, not that you have to know everything, but you should know if you're working for a security agency, you should know something about security. If you're working for a regulatory agency, you should know something about regulatory matters and just things. And then every person needs to know about budgetary matters for the U.S. government, which are much different from the private sector. And uh, sometimes things don't translate well. So I think just that openness and willingness to roll up your sleeves and, and learn about each other. So the nominee about the agency and the leadership of the agency, and then also people on the Hill, if it's a Senate confirmation position, Senate confirmed position, you better get to know those people uh, who are gonna be voting for your confirmation and what are their interests and their pet projects, let's say, and how can you best address that? So it's the whole package of things. I couldn't agree with you more, especially on the budget side of things. I have found uh, quite a few who have stumbled through the process not understanding how budgets can make or break your tenure because they just don't get the right support in place. Yeah, no, that's a good point, Patty. And I think that's, that was one of the advantages of coming from within the government where, and where I was basically the, you know, the COO of the FBI as a deputy director with great budgetary help from all the people who actually did the number crunching and all that, and then that would be presented. But yeah, without that background, that that I think anybody come from completely outside the government, never worked in government before, they need to pay really close attention to that part of the, of the, the briefings. Continuing on the conversation of briefings, and you've highlighted on some of this already, you've been responsible both for preparing briefing materials for incoming political appointees and received a lot of briefings as you began your tenure as TSA administrator. Do you have recommendations for best practices or pitfalls to avoid in the briefings themselves? Yes, I have a couple. One is, just as the name implies, to be brief. So subject matter experts sometimes tend to go on along into a lot of detail because they are subject matter experts. And that may be appropriate at that time, but probably not. It's probably the 20 to 25,000 foot level initially to have supporting background material, uh, whether it's in an appendix or annex or whatever, to have that available in case the nominee asks follow-up questions, say, well, if you turn to appendix A, there's that detail, but to you know keep it at the high level and succinct but thorough. So that's a 
challenge sometimes for briefers. And just because you are a good briefer doesn't mean you're a good subject matter expert and vice versa. So that's it's a combination of those talents, skills, and abilities that I think really can, can be effective if you have somebody who can be thorough yet succinct and then have supporting documentation. It's just like briefing the president. Uh, all the, the dozens and dozens of times I've I, I briefed either in the Oval or the sit room, the whole point is to, to keep it at the high level and then to be responsive to whatever the president or other principals uh, want to, to follow up on. And hopefully you have that detail that you can go into. And if you don't have the specific answer, just say, here's what I know. I don't know that that specific point. So I'll get that and get back with you. And so that's the whole idea, to be responsive and to really try to be sensitive to what the nominee's interests and, frankly, attention span. I, I will mention one I won't obviously say who it was, but uh, one person I was briefing who was literally, he just gave away it's a he anyway, he could not keep his eyes open. I, I don't know if he'd had a tough night, but he just kept, and so I would pause, and after a few seconds, then it, and then I would continue on. I thought, I think he knows he's dozing off, but to be attuned to the interest level and the ability to absorb new information in that setting, so... Continuing on this topic, you obviously briefed candidates, president-elect, presidents. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences conducting those briefings? Did you find significant differences pre- and post-election in how those briefings went? Yes. And I think pre-election and pre-being sworn in for the job, there's obviously just generalizing, but there's a general sense of what can I absorb right now? without all the other detailed information from all the handlers, the people, the assistants and and all the deputies and everything who actually will be the means by which the secretary or the director or the administrator will be receiving information once they're once they're sworn in. And so that I'll say not naivete in a bad way, but just that openness to receiving anything and asking any question all that. That is usually tempered, again, not necessarily in a bad way, perhaps more channeled way to say, okay, so after they've been in office for a while to say, okay, what can we and what should we be doing about this situation? And then they have the context of knowing what the scope of responsibilities and authorities are that, oh, the um, Department of Transportation can actually regulate airlines for security issues. They can do that for safety issues. And just some of those subtleties and nuances that most people outside of government would say, well, safety, security, I don't know, it's all the same thing, right? So just things like that and being attuned to how that candidate's perspective and paradigm will shift as she goes from the nominee to becoming the actual cabinet official or, again, director or administrator. My experience as well has been There's one kind of level of information you want to have, even if you are a national security perspective, when you know the primary reason you're receiving the brief is so you can say something in public. It's another level of conversation you want to have if you're leading a policy discussion or debate, because you don't want to say in public some of the things you absolutely need to have conversations about when you're having a policy discussion. And people need to remember, when you're briefing a candidate or briefing appointee before confirmation, they're focused on what they can say, not about 
the merits of the policy debate. <laughs> no, that's a great distinction, Patty. And that's, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's absolutely true. And most of those nominees are effective communicators in public. That's one of the reasons they're being invited, you know, in addition to their expertise and political allegiance and all that. So, yeah, that's a good point. Continuing on this trend, how did you adjust your briefings for the different personalities of incoming leaders or based on what their national security goals were? Yes, I think that's one of the key objectives for any briefing team and transition team is to know thy audience, going back to kind of a take on Socrates, I take it, but just the idea of how does your person like to acquire information? And even there've been lots written about the distinctions between the last three presidents, current president and the prior two presidents in terms of how they would receive briefings and do they like a written narrative though that they can, you know, one pager that they can read ahead of time before the briefer comes in? Or do they want to see charts and graphs and maps and things like that? Are they more visual in that regard? Or do they just want to talk about something without without reference to any documents or anything? So obviously that's one of the keys is how does the the nominee best receive information? How do they want to receive information? And then when you have to provide it in a different form to explain why you're doing that so it can be seen as, okay, this is is an exception, but it's important because, so that relevancy issue, so we're doing this this way because it's relevant, that's, you don't say to the person, that's what we've assessed as being your learning style uh, or the way you acquire information. And so just that whole paradigm of how does your nominee uh, best acquire information and how do, what's their preferred model of delivery for that? So that's, that's one of the keys. And then finding out as quickly as you can what content, what subject here. So, you know, I was talking about the processes first, and then it's a question of, so what is the content they're interested in? And you, you take any presidential administration and look at the cabinet and everybody's got their own interest and expertise and agendas. So the better you can understand those three things, the better your briefings can be in terms of addressing those. Because if you keep getting asked a question about this one area, but you're over here talking about policy or other things, that's not going to be really meeting the needs for for that department or agency or clearly the principal who's, who's running that. So I think that's part of the key is just understanding both the processes and, and how things work and then what is the content, the subject matter that they are really interested in and have the ability to go into greater detail because of their background and experience. I very much echo your point on how different briefing styles or briefing needs can be. I remember I had one boss who was a former prosecutor. We didn't really brief her. We more were deposed by her. Yeah. Um, compare and contrast to some of the other officials I have worked for over the years where they wanted to engage with you and learn the material and understand your perspective. And they'd let you do kind of an overview, but then they'd want to engage, right? So you can have widely variant in how their approach is. So what I like to tell people is you need to be flexible to be able to, you know, to to just demonstrate flexibility and your style and content may need to change during the course of a 10-minute briefing. You've got to be flexible uh, to address the needs of, of the person at that time. 
One more question on briefings. Do you have advice for national security officials who'll be providing threat briefings, especially those involving investigative or law enforcement information that's factual but adapts to that incoming official's background or briefing style? I would say in particular, you've had the experience of trying to explain law enforcement investigative techniques and national security to people who do not have background in those topics. Right. And I think that's part of it. Going back to know thy audience is what is that person's background and what is their level of comfort, frankly, with being told about. So there's this thing called the federal rules of criminal procedure or or grand juries and this thing called Rule 6E that limits the disclosure of grand jury material. And so things like that that may just you might be speaking a foreign language to somebody. If it's important for them to understand, at least be exposed to that, and it's relevant to whatever their, their position is, then you just have to put it out there. And and usually what I found is to have a written memo where you highlight all those things that they can that's that's a lead behind that they can refer to later and then ask their their assistants or aides to follow up on things like that. When you get into law enforcement sensitive information, um, there's always a hesitancy to share anything, obviously, of a pending nature because of this person's not not in position yet if it's a pre-confirmation briefing. And so there's always some limits on what that information is. And if they ask specific questions about specific investigations, that's something you really need to get uh, general counsel's perspective on and what can should be briefed because as my example of the first two nominees not getting confirmed by the senate that's something that that does happen it's it's not a rubber stamp and so you need to be careful about and sensitive to what that that information may be national security is a whole different animal if you will in terms of sources and methods and things that would not typically be briefed in a setting that, I mean, even in a skiff, but I'm talking about a setting for for most of the cabinet and, and department heads and things that it, the, the need to know basis rule would, would kick in and, and unless there was a need, specific need to know. And then I just again recommend that uh, the briefer has clear guidance from the general counsel's office as to what should and should not be briefed, and then that can be relayed to candidate or the, the nominee's handlers, if you will. And so, so it's not too awkward for the briefer uh, to say, well, I'm, that, that's classified, I can't tell you that. And, and that always goes over so well. Well, okay, so you want me to be the secretary of such and such, and you can't tell me that, so... <laughs> What advice would you give to political appointees experiencing their first presidential transition? Boy, learn about the department and agency, as I mentioned before, the importance of knowing not only the the broad brush issues, so what is this department or agency responsible for, but what are the subtleties and nuances that have been the challenges in the past year, three years, prior administration, whatever it may be. I was surprised at how little I knew about TSA when I started going through the briefing and the Senate confirmation process. I was so focused on FBI things, Department of Justice, 
and then working with DHS at the department level, I just wasn't focused on TSA issues. And of course, being armed, I didn't go through TSA security when I traveled. So there's a protocol for law enforcement officers. So I really was shocked to realize how little I knew that I just assumed, well, it's part of DHS and it was created after 9-11. And so people either in the white or blue uniforms at, at the airport and that I don't deal with. <laughs> that was a wake-up call for me. And I would strongly encourage anybody who is in that process to do your homework. It's the greatest, hopefully the greatest challenge and opportunity that you're going to have at this time to say, yes, I want to do the best possible job I can. And the best way I can prepare for that is learning everything I can. And these briefings are one of those steps, but most of the learning will need to come from my own reading research, asking questions, things outside of the briefing. So the briefing should be where you can really focus on those things that the subject matter experts will know and or will get the answers to. So I think just, yeah, the, the really doing your homework, whatever helped you be successful in life up to this point, do that, but with the focus being on the department or the agency that you've been asked to go in and lead. That's fantastic advice, not only for approaching confirmation, but also for becoming well acquainted and sufficiently prepared to lead the federal organization as well. Would you say that you looked at those as two sort of two stages, or did you try to sort of do them concurrently when you were when you were making that transition? So I, I think I blended the two, trying to, to make sure I understood everything I could about TSA, for example, and, and DHS, but also what I believe my own strengths were in terms of of leadership and ability to acquire information and then process that information in a way that made sense that if I was to be confirmed, how I would use that. But the whole Senate confirmation briefing process is, frankly, it's a grind. I mean, to, to go through so many different briefings, and of course, as, as you know, better than virtually all, with TSA being a large agency, there's a lot of moving parts, as in every agency. The challenge is how do you both understand that agency from the policy standpoint, but also from the personnel. And so TSA, when I got there, there was about 60,000 employees. And, and what, does, what does that mean for the average TSO, Transportation Security Officer? What can I do to identify issues and support those people who are performing a critical national security function, keeping terrorists off planes, and do it in a way that best affirms their position and their work in addition to work-life issues. So I think all those things come into play and how that nominee can best prepare. Hopefully they, they know somebody in the department or agency that they can talk to, quote, off the record, but just say, so tell me what that looks like and, and what are the issues that, that I should be attuned to. So it's both the formal and the informal processes, I would say, of learning about and then just diving in, jump in and and move forward. What advice do you have for individuals who are in more senior career positions and who may be therefore acting between such time as an outgoing political appointee 
leaves and then the new political appointee either is appointed or goes through confirmation. And then once the new person is on board, how can they transition so that they can support the new nominee, the new appointee? It's a great question, Patty, because I, I think so much of that comes down to the acting person's expertise, background, interest in continuing to serve, or are they, they simply a placeholder that say, as soon as the nominee gets confirmed, I'm out of here because that's not the person I wanted, or perhaps I wanted the job and, and I was hoping to be nominated, but that didn't happen, which, I mean, that happens from time to time. And, and oftentimes the the deputy secretary or the deputy director or administrator might be the best qualified in terms of knowing the organization, how it works, how to deal with the Hill and OMB and all those things, but doesn't have the the political connections or whatever. And so I think identifying that acting person's motives and interests and expertise, and then for that person to say, you are the acting head of the, the department or the agency. Do that. Don't let people tell you no. You have the authority and responsibility to lead during this time of transition. And so it might be for a week. It might be a, for a month. It might be close to 18 months, as it was with Gail Rossides, who was the acting administrator before I got there, because, again, those two prior nominees didn't make it through the process. And so she was not only de facto running TSA, she was TSA in terms of the leadership, although obviously Congress looks at people differently uh, if they've been confirmed by, by the Senate. And so I think it's, it's really that to embrace that role as an acting person with the understanding that you, you will not be in that position forever and you, you will need to adjust to who the new the personality of the new head of the department or agency and be open to what that person's preferences are. So some people, a new administrator, director, secretary may come in, and depending on how many appointees are in that agency or, or department, you may say, hey, I'm going to bring my own person in. So if you're the acting, you might be able to go back to your prior position, but it might be time to either retire or move on, look for other things, because it's just not not what you want it to be, as it was in the old days. But if you can't be flexible in, in terms of transition, I mean, by very definition, transition, right? Things are changing. And that's the one constant in life is change. And so what? how can you adapt and best position yourself and the agency in particular or department for success during that transition? And that acting time. So embrace the role, use the full authorities of that position, and then be flexible. That's how I would summarize that. I remember the first time I briefed you after you became TSA administrator. We were preparing you for a National Security Council Deputies Committee briefing where the DHS position was in opposition to FBI's position. I think the phrase you used at the time was, where you stand is where you sit. Can you give our listeners some advice on how to prepare for the changes they may need to make when taking on a new role in a new organization, how they can both stay true to their core policy beliefs, but incorporate additional U.S. government perspectives. Right. And I think that last point is, is particularly important, Patty, because there's each agency has their own respective roles and responsibilities and fiefdoms, I'll say. But you have to look at it, I think, from the 
the whole of government perspective, what is best for, and when I say whole of government, so what's best for the American people? And how do you help make decisions that will help, for example, in this case, the, the traveling public, you know, if you're at TSA, so those, particularly those people who, who fly. So what decisions will you make and how does that impact them in addition to other agencies that may have equities because they believe because of past practices that this is the way it should be and without going into detail about that particular situation that's one of the things i learned is that i had certain beliefs and perhaps some stereotypes about what agencies could and should do but it's all based on fbi information and so when i was in the new seat as the head of another agency I had different perspective on that, and so I needed to be able to articulate that, but do it in a constructive way that would hopefully be a win-win for both agencies because it's a win for the American people and for the government trying to to implement changes, and that's where it usually comes into play is changes. I remember several times where senators in pre-hearing discussions would raise personal issues, both about FBI and then later with, with about TSA. And it, just, it, it was just a great reminder that everybody brings their own personal set of values and information and experiences to the table. In my confirmation hearing, there was a lot of angst at, um, at DHS legislative affairs because one senator who had only met with the secretary and one other person in the whole department before going through the confirmation hearings wanted to meet with me. I won't say the senator's name out of respect, but so the question, wow, what does this senator want and all that? And and why you? Not that TSA is not, it's an important job, but maybe not at the top of some people's list. And it turned out this senator who's very well-known, respected, simply wanted to complain about the long TSA lines at their home airport. And what if I was confirmed, what would I do to fix the long lines at that airport? Nothing about the TSA security writ large, not, nothing about how we're integrated with the intelligence community or law enforcement. It was disappointing to me because I had a lot of respect for that senator up until that point. But then just realized, you know, we all get up every morning and you know, we get, get dressed and go to work when we're not in a pandemic. And we bring a lot of issues to the table and sometimes they're very personal and so just trying to understand that and uh, so that's in that situation with the fbi and disagreeing with the tsa says well this is here's a broader issue can we find common ground i think that's my preferred way of approaching it and sometimes recognizing no it's coming down to no we've got to do it this way and here's why and then going from there You highlighted that you were actually the TSA administrator, I think, for four and a half years. Mm -hmm. That is actually a quite long tenure for a political appointee. A lot of them really are at the two years, you know, to 36 months range. How do you find expectations for length of tenure affects the individual appointee's willingness to take on certain kinds of issues. Obviously, many come into new jobs, you know, wanting to immediately make a mark as as well they should. Some of those things, though, aren't really aimed at, yep, and in three years, I want to be here because they may or may not be expecting to be there then. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, there's a lot to unpack in that. And so just, I think, trying to be 
brief, I would say that it, it's important to understand if you are a senior person in, in that agency or department, a non-political appointee, trying to get a sense of that early on, is, is this person dragging a toenail across a, a base as one of my FBI colleagues talked about his promotion and said, yeah, I'm, man, I'm not going to say I'm just touch that base and launch on. And some are open to that. You know, I'm coming in, serve two years. Most are not because, again, they want to be effective and think, well, I'll be there four years, be there the whole term and, and maybe two terms or something, which, as you mentioned, is rare. So I think just trying to discern that, but then just being all in for as long as that person is there. And if you, if you are the, the, the nominee and, and you are the one who are serving, I would definitely not broadcast ahead of time that you're planning to do 18 to 24 months or 36 months or something. Because one thing you don't know, um, that might be your plan, but if you're a presidential appointee, as we've seen particularly in this last administration, that even if you have a set term, as certain people have, those terms are not always served because you do serve at the will of the president. And so that's one of the questions is how do you best do that while serving the needs of, of the, the men and women of that agency? And then, again, the American people. That's why we have a government, right, is to, to serve the needs of, of the American people and more globally, people around the world who depend on us for whatever that may be. So, yeah, there's so much to unpack in that. I think I would leave it at that high level. And, and then what I'd recommend is that, that you do a follow-up interview of yourself on this or Sasha <laughs> interview you to, to go into detail from your perspective on that. So you have a lot of good background experience in that. I think uh, probably the hardest thing for, for many careerists to understand is, you know, they've looked at problems, especially if they've been in an agency a long time, and they want to dive in on the really, really hard stuff. Mm-hmm. And the answer is most politicals go, I know I'm not going to be here to see this through. So I'm not sure I want to start. Right. Um, so you kind of have to, to gauge that with your, with your principal, but you know, knowing that you're going to have somebody in for a longer period of time gives you opportunity to take on some of those larger systemic cultural level of certainty in an organization. Right. No, that's a good point. And having that, the best sense of that going in is the most effective, I believe for the agency and again, for the American people, but Unfortunately, we don't know. Don't always have that, right? Have that uh, luxury or whatever. So again, you just you jump in and say, "This is the way it is now." We have an opportunity today. I mean, it gets back to to like the you know the scripture from the Psalms: "This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it." We don't have tomorrow. We don't have yesterday. We've got today, and so let's do what we can with that and uh, make the most of it. And, and give thanks for the opportunity to be serving, to be in public service making a difference uh, for others, hopefully a difference for good. Is there anything we didn't cover that you would want to provide in terms of advice or, or things that you, you wish somebody had told you, you know, maybe earlier on in your career? Well, you've covered quite a bit, Patty. And yeah, we could talk a long time about these things, but no, I think you've covered the high points and, and each situation is unique. Each person, just as each person is unique. And the sooner the nominee and the briefing team, and then those from the agency or department that would be allowed to interact with that person during that confirmation process, the more transparent and focused that uh, everybody can be in terms of how do we best do this, again, to serve the American people moving forward. 
assuming that I'll be confirmed, let's say, and that I will become the next fill in the blank. And that's what we're all here for. So we're working toward a common goal. Let's give thanks for that privilege and that opportunity uh, as part of our system of government. So, And I would just say best wishes and Godspeed to everybody involved in this process who's listening to this. John, thank you again. We really appreciate you joining us here today for this episode. It was a pleasure talking with you about your experiences. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Mission is Possible, the Presidential Transition miniseries. If you're interested in hearing more, look out for new episodes in the special series and check out our other episodes on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or on the GuideHouse website.